listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, joined today by Mike DeMonte. Mike, how you doing, man? Uh, doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's, it's been a while since uh, we, we've done one of these. I know, you know, we talk, you know, via social media as well, you know, with each other, but it's kind of cool to you know, uh, do your show again because it's, it's one of the, the one of the best ones out there for sure. Thanks, man. Dude, it's it is so much fun to have you on. I'm really excited to have you on today. So Listeners, the reason that we're talking to Mike today is that he has just published a book, um, Punk Rock and UFOs, Stranger Than Fiction. It's available uh, via, you know, Amazon and Kindle, available paperback. It is well worth the money, well worth the time to read it. It's so good. Um, A nice continuation of your book, True Believers. Um, And really just kind of you, you now have like a series of these going, man. Yeah, um, it's almost like the, the I, I kind of I may have mentioned in the book. It's almost like a completion of a trilogy. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. I'm thinking like all great trilogies, you have to end on a like on a strong point. So that was the goal for this book is to kind of thematically tie up the other ones and also stand on its own too. Just to kind of if this is the last book I ever read about UFOs, I'm, I'd be happy with. That was my mentality going in. Yeah. So the book. So this book in particular. So. For listeners that don't know, I guess, why don't you give them a little bit of background on you? I mean, we've done, we've had you on the show before, so hopefully people know who you are already. Um, but a little bit of background on kind of you, why you come to this subject in the first place, um, you know, what you're thinking here on this stuff is. Absolutely. So once again, Chris, thanks for having me on again. Um, so my background uh, outside of UFOs and weird stuff, uh, I used to work for the Houston Chronicle, First Media for about seven years on the copy desk. I also did some writing. I also worked on their website. I did some reporting. I did a little bit of everything there. Um, and now I teach full time. But as a kid, you know, I was really into, um, you know, comic books and action figures and science fiction and horror, scary movies. And um, when I first started reading more non-fictional texts, one of the first things I was drawn to, uh, Time Life did the series and each month it was a new one. It was like Mysterious Places, UFO phenomenon. So as soon as I started reading those, I really got hooked because it was, um, I was able to sink my teeth into those because it was very much like the fictional things I was reading too, but there was some truth in, in me in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that, that piqued my interest at a young age. And then I'd say probably like maybe six or seven years ago is when I started to actively investigate this stuff myself. I was never really, I mean, I was always into it. I never stopped being into it, but there comes a point where you, you know, you're not just a bystander anymore. You're a contributor. And I wrote my first book and then, uh, yeah. And then eventually, you know, uh, com started just to be a continuation of that research. And then the second book came out and then I can, as I continue my research on the website, I decided to do a third book to really just wrap it all up. And, uh, yeah, so that's where we're at now. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Sweet. Yeah. So the, one of the interesting things, in my mind, at least that happens in the book or one of the interesting things that you kind of go over is the idea that. So we hear a lot about this idea that, you know, well, all of this might be connected in some way, right? All of this is one phenomena, right? Um, and kind of, I think famously the big proponent of that right now is probably Hellier. Or that's kind of the, the way that people today are kind of, you know, taking it in and seeing it for the first time. It's an idea that's been around for a, for a while um, but I really like what, what I like about your book is the idea. So your book doesn't give any definitive answers. Your book is mostly asking questions and then providing some interesting context and thoughts around those. 
And that's it's kind of refreshing in this field where people are writing books and they're saying things like, you know, I was on this base and these are this is what UFOs are right for someone to be like, well, I don't know what they (laughs) I don't know what they are necessarily, but I think this is all really interesting. I think that this idea or this line of thought is interesting. Um, It almost felt to me very much so like kind of a primer on, you know, we've we talked a lot about on on the show about this idea that, you know, we want to see this subject taught or at least thought of more academically because we think there's something interesting here. These stories are worth telling. They're worth hearing regardless of the veracity of the underlying claims. And what your book really, I think, is is interestingly does is it's kind of like a it's it's almost a, a, a primer on one school of ufological thought, I guess, is what I would say. Not really just UFOs, but one one realm, I guess, of kind of esoteric or maybe paranormal thought, which is the idea, which is really a metaphysical kind of school of thought here, right? That not only are these subjects connected in some way, potentially, but that there appear to be links to our subconscious, to our um, our stories, our myths that we tell ourselves and that we've told since we began telling stories. Um, and that maybe there's something deeper to those kind of motifs that keep appearing. And the coolest way you do that is by talking about Batman and Superman, right? That's like the eas- easily the coolest way you do it. Although, at, yeah, as I was reading it, though, I seriously. So listeners, as I'm reading this book, I texted Mike and I was like, where are the Sandman references, bro? Like, what's going on? Why is there no Sandman in here? Where's the books of magic? So tell us a little bit about that, about that link, I guess, or what do you think is there? What do you think is interesting about that? So you actually brought up quite a few points um, before leading into the question. Um, one of the things that you were talking about is, you know, I ask a lot of questions and I bring up a lot of points and, you know, as a journalist or just as a researcher in this case, that's all we really have is questions because in, with this field, it's so hard to find definitive answers. But if you're asking the right questions and you're getting people to open up their minds and, and their, their way of their thought processes, that's how you make progress. And you made a really good point earlier about kind of like about this potentially being studied academically one day and, um, and how this book could be like a primer for that. And that, that's actually a really cool thing to say because I, I wrote it where um, you could give this book to an, a college professor who's maybe a humanities professor um, or somebody like um, who teaches, uh, I don't know, like a, maybe a religious studies or, or a class like a mythology class. And then you can also give it to some kid in high school who watches Stranger Things and Star Wars, right? Or you give it to someone who's into ufology or someone, you know, and they could all kind of read it and it's kind of all on the same level. Um, where they could hopefully find a commonality. And that is the goal here, is for people to find a commonality with the paranormal and say, hey, you know what, this stuff isn't really so weird. There's something there. Uh, and to try to normalize this idea that, I mean, honestly, you know, if you look back from the beginning of time, all these weird occurrences have always been happening. And only now we consider them paranormal. Back then they weren't considered that extraordinary. Um, so I think you, you bring up a really good point about academically, this is something where... And, um, you know, maybe some, some instruction may be going. And uh, we were talking earlier off the air, and uh, we were saying how, how come, you know, you made the point that how come when somebody with a PhD says crazy shit, it's okay, but if it's, you know, just someone on a subway talking about a subject, they're crazy. 
And I think that was a great point to make because, um, I mean, there are, there are colleges, you know, big universities that have, you know, large humanities programs, which when they really talk about this stuff, um, professor Jeffrey Kripal, somebody I quote in the book, he's a friend of mine, right? He's doing that in Rice University right now. Uh, I went to his class one day to speak to his students and he has great kids. I mean, these are, and then like I said, Rice is a very prestigious university. So for them, to be accepting about these types of classes, I think that, that speaks volumes in terms of academically, um, academic acceptance to some of the more you know supernatural and paranormal topics. Yeah, you know when it is, it is. I think interesting. So one thing you really think, I think again, just to reiterate, I think you do really well in the book is the idea of it, it is written and presented in a way, like you said, where you can give it to a kid who's interested in this stuff and they can understand it. But if you're looking at this with a more rigorous sort of, I guess, kind of, I don't know, uh, coming at this from the perspective of, like you said, a religious studies or philosophy or humanities, you can you can still there's a lot of meat to chew on. There's a lot of stuff there. And. I think there is something to the idea of the breakdown where the ideas and the concepts you mentioned in the book, things like there being kind of a common storyline that, you know, repeats right in, in, in human cultures. And well, why does it repeat right in the book? You mention the nightmare and the old hag and, you know, these other kind of um, folklore things that represent or try to explain a, a scary hallucinatory or maybe not hallucinatory experience people have when they're asleep or maybe not asleep, right? This, this thing crushing your chest and meeting you in the night and taking you out of bed. Um, that is something that was discussed academically in philosophy for, for generations, right? For, for, for years and years and years. Um, and these ideas of, you know, can your mind be tricked? What is it to cognate? What is it to think? What is it, you know, this idea of there being two, realities one reality that is physical that we see in front of us but also one where our where our brains and our our minds create objects and move things and do things themselves kind of our inner thoughts all of that is a super a very very long academic tradition you know longer than science has so i guess i wonder in your perspective of this how do you introduce this stuff this kind of high concept difficult subject matter to the same crowd that watches um, gets a lot of information from something like say ancient aliens. Like how do you, how do you put them together? How do you bridge that gap? See, I don't think it's that hard with that crowd because they already accept a lot of weird stuff to begin with. Sure. Well, yeah, right. Well, yeah, sure. Oh, so yeah, I guess actually, you know what? Let me, let me rephrase it. Right. How do you reconnect the thread Okay. Cause yeah, those guys, those, those people that are watching ancient aliens, those folks that are already in this stuff, they're like, right on, man, I'm with you. Right. So there's not, there's nothing to connect there. I think you're correct. The part, I think that's the part that's interesting for me is connecting that academic thread that we kind of lost with the advent of material science and materialism as you know, and, and kind of, um, philosophy kind of saying, well, metaphysics is too ridiculous and we're throwing it away. And now we're all Marxist and we're, you know, we all believe in determinism, right? Um, how do you reconnect that thread to academic philosophy or religious studies or whatever? I think in your book, you talked to a lot of those folks, but 
I, I just I think it's gonna be hard. Well, I think I mean you said it earlier. Like a lot of these themes are discussing philosophy already, um, but I think once you start bringing these um, these cases, even like so, what I, I want to do in the book is like I'm, I bring up some current event stuff, like a lot of like the, the Tic Tac and a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of those, those things as well, because there's something that's you know, big and it's it's current. So if someone's able to kind of see that, oh hey, I saw that on the news. Maybe they read a few articles about UFOs, then they start. Um, you know, going further down that rabbit hole in the pipeline, they say, "Wow, you know what? This has been happening for you know for centuries, and it's been seen differently culturally and culturally." I think the goal is for that individual to make those connections himself, and I think you know, in some of the the academic classes, students are already doing so. Um, I think it's great mm-hmm. when professors, like Professor Kripal, who brings up UFOs and abductions and all these things to his classes, and, and uh, um, you know, journalists like. Leslie Kane, who, you know, goes to speak to his classes and she's also writing books on uh, near-death experiences. And so these are people like kind of putting their professional reputations out there to kind of talk about these, you know, these subjects that are, were potentially viewed a certain way years ago. And I think it's fascinating because um, so every year I teach. So we do uh, one day of like during the professional development where we will teach each other. And every year I do like a UFO or you know a paranormal seminar and you know, a bunch of teachers come in and you never know what to expect. And I'm always shocked by how many, how many of them are so open-minded, even to some of the more out there stuff. Like, you know, I'll bring up skin. I'll, I'll, I throw them with everything crazy just to kind of see their reaction. I'll throw in Skinwalker Ranch, Goblins. I mean, you name it. And, uh, you know, it's always fascinating. Like there's one teacher who I would never expect in a million years would say something to this matter. But like, she, she was like, yeah, um, because she, she, she's like religious, she's very like by the book. Um, she's like, yeah, I used to live on a farm uh, growing up in um, kind of over by Kentucky, and I used to see these little things in the night. And I'm like, and then you know, she, she wouldn't tell anyone. And finally, like, she brought it up, and her brothers and cousins were like, oh, I saw that too. And it's like, I would never in a million years expect her to like believe or have a sighting like that. So it's 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 like these things are more common than 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 you think, you know. So it's I think the we're already kind of working into that um, that gray area where we're able to make these connections easier nowadays. Because I think you know, one of the points I try to make in the book is, you know, through pop culture, a lot of these things are already out there. So people are familiar with, you know, experimentation and uh, telekinesis and, you know, all these things that we've seen in comic books and movies. They're already familiar with these themes. And so if you, if you present to them, hey, this could be real, I don't think it's that much of like a blow to them. Yeah, that's that's kind of, I guess, the underlying for me, at least reading it. And maybe I'm wrong. And I always think that's I always think it's really funny um, because you're a teacher now. So you probably ask your students this question, actually, where you you ask them or they read a book and then you're like, well, what what is it that you think the author meant by this book? Right now is like a podcaster. Yeah. Now as a podcaster getting to talk to the authors. I'm always like, well, this is what I think your book's about. Right. And they're just like, "Not, no, you're wrong. Incorrect. Incorrect, sir. Um, you know, I wonder what Emily Bronte would have thought of my reading of her works. <laughs> Probably not have been happy. But um, so for me, at least, it seemed like the underlying thesis of the book was this sense or this idea that a lot of these ideas appear to be, like you just said, a lot of these appears to, ideas appear to be out there until you think about all of the sort of all of the stories that, it, and even again, some of them are, are, are myths, some of them are legends, some of them are religious, some of them are whatever. But a lot of those stories aren't that hard to stomach 
they're 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 already been told to us. We already think of them as, you know, not necessarily plausible, but at least something we've been exposed to. So what how far is that leap between, you know, I guess for lack of a better term, like a world with and without magic, right? Or a world with and without um aliens, or a world with and without uh God or whatever, right? I I think it's a really interesting point you bring up in the book. And I don't know if that was I don't know if that was your underlying thesis or not, but I'm telling you as a as a person who read your book that it is. So, you know, you have to agree with me now because it's my show. So I don't care. Well, it's like, what for you, what was your underlying thesis, I guess? What was your... Yes, so the goal of the book, and I think I've, I've used, I used this line somewhere in there, it's to normalize the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas, you know, like you said, like, you know, a lot of these things aren't too far-fetched because they've been showing up in mythology, legends, and religious texts, even in our historical texts as well. And, you know, at one point, science fiction was science you know, and mm-hmm. vice versa. You know, they feed off each other. The things that you see in some sci-fi movies eventually become doable. You know, mm-hmm. not everything, of course, but it's like, so they all really kind of lend hand in hand into the, not the sense where they're, they're, you know, blurred, but they're just, be, they've influenced, influenced each other, you know, throughout time. So it's not like it's this, you know, the shock that, you know, fiction and nonfiction somehow connect somewhere in the middle of time so yeah the goal of the book is just kind of normalize these these paranormal and these these weirder um weirder topics and occurrences because you know if you, if you do that you know through if i can make the connections to a comic book someone read or a stranger things or star wars or whatever then i in that i get that person thinking about it then they can make those connections of their own and this is something you know we're talking about you said about sandman and like, I didn't read much Sandman growing up, but maybe you read one comic, but I asked my, myself a similar question. I was rewatching all the old Marvel movies. I was like, oh, you know what? I could have put that in there. Like there's a bunch of stuff I could have put in there, right? But I said, mm-hmm. well, the, the point of the book is I didn't want to put every single mythological and pop culture connection to paranormal. I wanted to just, I did select versions of it. Ones that I'm, I'm well-versed on and ones I can make connections with because I want the reader to kind of do that on their own. You know, I, I want the, someone maybe read my book and then they watch uh, Stranger Things and they say, oh, wait a minute, this, this, that Montauk was a real place? And then they research it and then they, they can make those connections. So mm-hmm. that's the goal is ultimately, you know, like you'll pick up the book and like, oh, man, what about Sandman? Like, it's the same thing. It's the, kind of that idea that some people could start making those connections, like connecting the dots themselves. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So then I read it right then. So I get an A on my reading comprehension, which is really good. Uh, happy about that, man. Yeah. It- so one of the things reading it that I thought was really interesting was the idea that you, I don't, so I can't remember exactly who said it and it was early-ish in the book, but one of the people you were talking to basically said, you know, these events are a lot more common than we think they are. You know, I can't remember if it was, if it was purple or if it was someone else. Um, it was purple. It was purple. Okay. So the, you know, it, it reminded me actually of a story. So we on this on this show, we did a kind of a funny. I thought it would be funny if we did for Halloween, like last year or the year before or something, a thing about a haunted painting. Because one of my biggest kind of and you actually talk about coincidences, too. So this kind of ties into that, too. But so I am um, I had when I was a kid, my uncle Martin, my Maria had in their Brooklyn home, they had this 
painting that was like oddly ominous for me. I don't know why I was so spooked by this painting, but I just I hated that painting. I thought it was so sinister. And it's like it's like a pretty standard oil painting of like a, a river. You know what I mean? In, in 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 the winter. And I just thought I just I got a bad vibe from that painting. I never wanted to sleep in that room, even though I always had to because it was like the guest room. You know, wasn't a fan of this painting at all. And uh, and my co-host Marie was like, oh, we should totally do a haunted painting. I'll go get one at a flea market and I'll I'll paint it right myself. And so she goes to this flea market and she she decides, like, I'm going to get she's like, oh, I found the perfect painting. And she sends me a photo of it. It's the same fucking painting. Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's the same. It's the same painting. OK, so we're freaking out. And Marie is like, no, you're misremembering it. There's no way. And I'm like, it's the same painting, Marie. I will never forget that painting. So I'm, I get my mom to go to Brooklyn, take a picture of the painting. It is the same painting, of course. So now we're freaking out. Right. And then when the episode publishes, one of my cousins reaches out and says, hey, I saw a ghost in that room. And my uncle, evidently, I didn't know this, but evidently the guy that used to live in that apartment killed himself in that room. So it was like, that's like the closest to paranormal anything has ever gotten in my life. You know what I mean? And I'm so I'm reading your book and I'm like that fucking painting, man. It's coincidences. It's coincidences. It's media. It's all of it together. Has anything like that happened to you? Nothing that creepy because um, that's, that's pretty creepy. It, like what? It could be a simple coincidence, you know. It, none of them could be related to another. But like, you look at that, and it's like, man, that's like four different coincidences. It's, a, like- it's a lot. Yeah. It's <laughs> and even like you, you know, I am skeptical. You know what I mean? I am a skeptical person. But even that, like to me, I was like, that's 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 a little that's a little strange. It's a little weird. I think that says something. If like you could spook out the most skeptical person, and there's there's something there. You know, there's. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Even, yeah. Even a lot of the, you know, the investigations for, you know, UFOs and, you know, and like Skinwalker Ranch, for example, a lot of those scientists who first started, you know, exploring this, they were skeptical to begin with. And they come out the other end, you know, with a different uh, view on it. So I think it's always fascinating when presenting some of this material to skeptical people that they kind of, you know, open up their minds a little bit to the possibilities. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Because, it was in in the not the last chapter, but like the last kind of, I guess, analytical chapter before you got into kind of more of like personal like dreams and, and stuff like that, where uh, Diana Pasalka is is talking and mentions about, you know, the idea of coincidence and how it appears. And I thought it tied really nicely to the rest of the book, where if you're someone reading this book and you're kind of very skeptical, you're reading all this stuff about media and how it portrays these things. And you're kind of thinking like, well, maybe it's all coincidence. Maybe it's all whatever. And then she gets in and is like, well, sometimes coincidences are freaking weird. You know what I mean? Like sometimes coincidences themselves are a, a kind of a weird, um, I don't know, kismet or whatever, you know? And so it's, it's really interesting. I think that idea of coincidence, but the, you know, from the skeptical point of view, the thing I always wonder is with those sorts of things, if it isn't looking for something, or um, finding what you're looking for, right? So, you know, you start working on something weird like this, and maybe you've had weird stuff happen your whole life. 
but you never thought of it as you never thought of it as weird. Well, so it's it's one of two ways, right? You either didn't know it was weird, or you or you always thought it was common until you talked to somebody else, and then it's like, oh, that was paranormal and strange. Or the other way, now that you want it to be paranormal, you're looking back, right? And you're trying to find things that fit. It's always hard for me to to separate that out for um I mean I mean myself first off but also I think for other people's stories um it's just it's just such an interesting thing so I wonder though for yourself um where do you fall on the spectrum there of belief I guess do you think I'm Eliza and I need you to listen to me Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed because you want to scream for the ones they've hurt the ones they've taken scream for yourself these are my words my story from my perspective because i know you'll hear other versions because i want you to have a chance to believe mine or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. Are you like 50-50? Do you think some of it is real, some of it is not? Do you think are you all in? You know what I mean? Like where what do you think is I guess if you had to summarize in what is 45 minutes minus 26 minutes of co- of time left on tape, right? <laughs> if you had to summarize, I guess, what you think all of this is, and that's a hell of a ask. Um, but if you had to give kind of like a, a thesis statement, what would you think it would be? Man, that's that's so hard to kind of put into words, but it's a terrible question. No, it's a good interview, question. but <laughs> challenging. But like, all right, so let me start with a couple of things. So like, I look at it this way. You make a really good point about people maybe willing themselves to believe because they want to believe that these things happen. Mm-hmm. So maybe they're more, you know, acceptable to, you know, believing that something happened and maybe it didn't. Um, but there's also the people who've had these experiences who don't want to believe it happened because it was so terrifying and so traumatic for them. So you, you get like those two ends of the spectrum. And then like, you know, you look at all these, you know, stories about, you know, these weird connections and the and these coincidences and, you know, at the same time, it's like that could exist, but, are you really that special in the whole universe? You know? Um, so it's mm-hmm. really hard to kind of definitively give you an answer on that. Cause I think I kind of fall in the middle. It could be either one. Um, but for me, you know, to kind of answer your last question too. So uh, I bring up a dream I had at the end of this book, mm-hmm. um, which, and then also in my first book, I mentioned a dream I had too. And the very first book when I was writing it, I was basically, you know, researching every day, this topic, mm-hmm. uh, I'll be watching documentaries reading about it. So it's basically like I was doing UFO stuff all day for the most part, you know, I stopped to work out and eat and shower, you know? Um, mm. So I had a, like a nightmare one night and it felt like, like I was being like abducted or I was trying to be abducted. And what I, uh, the conclusion I came to is of course that didn't happen. It was just all in my head because of, of how heavily into the research I was, even mm. though it felt, it felt like a night turn. Like it felt real. But I, at the end of the day, I was like, that, I wouldn't. If it, if it was a real abduction, I wouldn't have remembered as much as I did, you know. Mm. So I, I kind of look at, you know, people have those experiences too. But then I look at the the dream I had when I was. So 
those dream I had that I referenced in this book, it wasn't when I was writing this book. This was bef before that. I think I, I did a post on my on my website about it. And it was just, it was so oddly specific, which kind of ha had me like shaking my head because I'm like, when you dream about stuff, you usually dream about things that are more abstract, I guess, or just, you know, um, larger mm -hmm. things. And there were so much specific things that were in this dream that I remembered and were just kind of was just stood out to me and it's like it was just so oddly specific now i'm not saying that that dream happened or not but it's just it's definitely a weird coincidence that it had all these specific even like how the alien was like talking to me in this dream um really coincides with a lot of uh regression reports about how people apparently how they communicate as well mm. i thought that was a really weird thing to dream about because it was such a specific way the answer was worded and just everything about that dream was just oddly specific. So I really want to include it in the book because I think it showed kind of that weird coincidence. You know, what's interesting about the dream section too, is I think that a lot of, we very rarely, and I think this is a shame, honestly, we very rarely get a glimpse into how other people cognate, how they dream, how they're, how they do, you know, kind of the physical, but also the mental process of thinking. You know, the the first time I ever considered that maybe I there was something weird about the way that I thought was in a philosophy class. Reading um, existential philosophy, and you know, hearing reading about like Sartre. And, and, um, you know, mostly Sartre, um, <laughs> you know, it was like an eight, you know, like 80% of the class, but reading about Sartre and this, this notion in existential philosophy of the kind of dread of the what if, so you're, you're sitting on a windowsill reading and your mind thinks, well, I could jump out of this window at any time and being terrified, not only at the the thought itself, but also terrified at the freedom of that expression that you could do it and what's stopping you and why not do it. Right. Um, other people in the class kind of thought of it differently than I did. And I was like, well, that's, that's weird. I always thought people just had that fear like that. Right. Turns out, no, that's, that's obsessive compulsive disorder. <laughs> Great. But you know, it was, it was interesting, right. That, that, that sensation of like, Oh, that's how other people think and it's different than I am. Um, reading your dream chapter, it's it's funny actually. It reminds me, I you know, I've never had anything as kind of specific as what you had with the with the an alien presence and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I know, and I've spoken about this on the show a lot, I have extremely vivid dreams. I've always had extremely vivid dreams. And there are some, like you said, that are very flighty and like you know we're in a room and we're in the sky or whatever but then there are some that are kind of more solid they're narrative you know what i mean and they fit into a larger narrative um there's a giant hotel i go to in my dreams all the time you know what i mean and it's common it comes up all the time right um and like rooms connect and they go a certain way and you know it's so it's always interesting to me to hear about other people's dreams and their sensations of them. And um, I just thought it was a cool ass chapter, man. I just thought it was, it was such a cool addition. And again, kind of regardless of, for me at least, 
for me at least, it feels like the reality of the dream itself or not is sort of immaterial. You know what I mean? Because whether the dream is your brain talking to itself um, or something talking to you, you can still gain perspective and, 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 I don't know, growth from a dream, I guess, you know? And again, it's the most, this is like the most woo I've ever gotten on an episode, frankly. Um, that's how much I liked your book, but, um, I, but I do, I think it's a really interesting concept and it's something again, that wasn't that far out, <laughs> right? For 95, 98% of human experience. Yeah. And that's something you were talking about earlier, you know, when you're in a philosophy class and had you thinking a different way. And I remember, you know, when I was in college taking I think, philosophy, sociology, and yeah, you find out that these thoughts are kind of always there, but, you know, sometimes it takes reading and learning to kind of like mm -hmm. bring it out, you know, like, or your beliefs or, you know, certain things that, that then um, justify your beliefs and kind of like the way you think as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really cool thing about you know, education is, you know, not only learning something new, but learning something about yourself and how your mind works too and which the values you hold. Um but yeah, like, you know, you're saying you're having this vivid dream. I'm going to suggest something to you uh, to read. Um, it's fictional. So Tom Belange and Susan Young, they're a Poet Anderson uh, series. And it's really cool because it's basically, you said something. You said it, yours takes place in a hotel. And this is a reoccurring event. And in this book, the there's something called uh, Poets and Dreamwalkers. And uh, the hotel is basically like a house for them in between the dream world and reality. So it's pretty interesting that you mentioned that. Hmm. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, man. That's cool. Check out the books. The books are basically like Tom Belange came up with this idea after reading some studies about like dream studies. Hmm. So they came up with this fictional thing. I mean, they're young adults, so they're like they're written for kids. So there's some like young adult cliches, but like conceptually, it's like it's pretty cool. And it's like as like franchise material. And I think you would really like it, especially with the whole uh, dream and hotel thing too. So it's, it's always fascinating. Like see right there, we made a connection from something fictional. Yeah. It's, it's, it's extremely interesting, right? For me, you know, for me, it's always, for me, it has always gone back to that kind of famous um, memory trick of the memory palace, right? Or the memory walk where you put your mental states or your mental memories into a, uh, your brain is good at geolocating. So your brain is good at knowing, like, I take 10 steps, I'm at the door. I take 20 steps, I'm in the hallway, right? Um, it's oh, so interesting, man. So one, one thing, I guess, or one final thing is a question on, or I guess a question I had for you generally was, with that whole idea of not knowing how people cognate or not seeing how other people think, it's, it seems to me, at least, that that's one area where both skeptics and true believers fall short in their analysis, which is thinking or assuming that everyone thinks the same way they do. You know, um, I'll never forget in college, I had a friend who we found out one night at the bar that he he physically could not hear music. It didn't make sense to him it was like um how did he he described it like uh i'm trying to think almost like charlie brown's teacher how she kind of talks but it's not words that it was like that like so he, he like clinically tone deaf you know 
that is so out of the realm of possibility for most people to think about, you know, you'd never consider that that's a thing. Um, but it's, it is true. That is a thing that occurs and exists. Um, I wonder if books like yours or, or similar books in like philosophy in even just narratively, right. Of introducing someone to the way someone else thinks or, or kind of leading them through that thought process in, a, in an interesting way. Um, that I thought was actually, in my mind, at least the most effective part of the book was that description of, of that process. And also just kind of reading it, it felt like the whole book was a little bit of your thought process, right? It, it felt very, um, not stream of consciousness per se, because that's just like James Joyce unreadability, right? But um, it felt very much so like an internal dialogue, I guess. And so I, I just thought really at the end, for the most part, I think it was that to me was the most effective or the, the most interesting. I thought. Interesting. That's an interesting take on that. And the stream of consciousness then kind of makes sense. I mean, I was selective of what I chose to feature in there, but like, I mean, a lot of these thoughts are obviously my own and my own mm. interests in you know, my book. <laughs> um, but like the idea of just challenging people's thoughts in the first place is something I, I tried to do in the first two books too. So I really wanted to uh, challenge people's uh, way of thinking to, to do it in a, just to kind of tie it all together with this book. But, you know, you, have, you made a good point earlier is that how we, we tend to uh, disregard how other people think and how their mind works. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes we'll find fault at other people. And it's like, you know, everyone's wired differently, you know, so it's, it's really hard to, I guess, I mean, I guess it's sometimes harder to kind of uh, come to the, that conclusion that, you know, I'm right and you're wrong, but we're, 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 our brains are just wired differently, you know? So especially mm-hmm. with, this, with this topic too, you know, we're wired to things so differently, but it's like, you know, one of the things I did in the books, I wanted to show, you know, how, how things are perceived through different cultures and, and you know, folklore and mythology as well. So people can say, well, you know, they may be witnessing the same or having the same experience, but they're thinking about it differently. They're digesting it differently. Mm-hmm. That's, Basically, kind of, you know, the point you made earlier, you know, we all think differently as well. So, you know, you can still challenge people's belief systems, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's up to that person to kind of choose the path they want to go down. Do you want to continue thinking the way they do, or do they want to maybe, you know, open their mind up a little bit? Or, but in some cases, people just can't, like you said, you know, the example you gave about your friend who just couldn't hear music the way everyone else does. And, you know, that's awful. Like, I feel awful for that. For, but uh, no, I mean, like, you know, who's to say, who's to judge? Oh, well, you can't do this or so there's something wrong with you or whatever. Everyone's wired different. I think we have to try to respect that as long as people are still morally doing the right thing. For sure, man. And that's actually, I guess, kind of the last the last part of this that I guess we can get into or maybe we should get into is one of the big questions for me with all of this, this whole field is the the ethics, I guess, around or surrounding the questions of belief, right? So it, it feels very much so like, you know, um, subjectively, if you want to believe something, that seems fine, right? There's nothing ethically questionable there at all. Um, where it becomes questionable, I guess part of the, one of the concerns that I always have with these fields is the sense of dogmatism and telling someone this is the way it is or, um, even doing even even some you know doing some things that aren't necessarily all that ethical like like hypnosis or like um you know um 
I don't know, fake cures for things or whatever. Um, one of the interesting things in the book, I guess, or I, I think the book is written and put in a way that you kind of don't, it doesn't ever ask those ethical questions. And I think that's by design, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, from your perspective, though, or I guess, and I think that's, it's just a question that I've started asking everyone who comes on the show that does this kind of stuff, um, really, is from your perspective, like, in terms of the ethics of belief or the ethics of this stuff, if, if none of this is real, if none of it at the root is real, are the people saying it's real ethically culpable? Uh, see, so you have to assume that they knew from the start it wasn't real. Well, so that, right. Well, so that, and so that I think is the, that I think is the interesting or the best answer to that question, I guess. Right. Is, is like you said. Yeah. I mean, look at it this way. Like, you know, you could study for something for a long time and then at the end of the day, you could be wrong about it. That doesn't mean that your intentions were unethical or, or wrong. But like, if you look at it, like as a journalist perspective, right, if you ethically approach something, you do the reporting on it, right. The ethical way. And at the end of the day, maybe the story isn't what it was supposed to be, or maybe it's not as, you know, the biggest story as you thought. That doesn't necessarily mean ethically, you know, you were wrong. I mean, if you did the right things as a journalist, you should be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the things, you know, um, that I teach as a journalism teacher and I learned in journalism too, is, you know, you need to cover your tracks, right? But with what we're doing, you know, what we're interested in, you know, it's so hard because it's like, if all this stuff wasn't real, you know, if we found out it was all like just uh, something that happened in our brain or whatever, I don't think anyone would be held responsible because no one knows really, you know, you can't fault the person for trying to find the answers and then not finding it because so many of these questions that we want answered to, we may never get the answers or we may not never know them. So, you know, it's really hard, especially because like there's people who have been dedicated like their lives to this. Like some of these people have been doing this for like, you know, 20 years, like it blows yeah. my mind. Because we're talking, you know, before we went on the air about kind of like ufology, and it's like, how do you not get burned out with this stuff? Because, I mean, you know how it is, you know, when you were with MUFON and how crazy that, that situation was, and just how, you, how UFO Twitter is. And it's like, I said, I was, I was telling people earlier, I was like, if this is the last book I ever write about UFOs, I'd be happy with it. Because I'm really proud of the job I did on it. But at the yeah. same time, like, this stuff is exhausting. Like, it really, it really gets tedious. You know, the, it, it does, it's hard. It's so hard, man. It's like the, it's like the worst hobby I've ever had. (laughs) I mean, I don't know between this I've heard, well, I've heard, I've I've heard that like competitive magic, the competitive magic, the gathering is almost as, you know, taxing on the soul. Uh, You know, it's just such, for me, at least it is such a fascinating thought experiment to think like you said, if it's all, if, if imagine a scenario where everybody thinks they're telling the truth, everyone is, is good faith looking for answers. And I think that's mostly true for everyone. And I think that's probably like 99% of the people in, in this field, right? They're all good faith looking for answers, but it all stems from like one lie. You know what I mean? That's so, it's so interesting to me that part of it like what that it's just i don't know it sometimes it feels like the economy is like that frankly <laughs> it's all based on the one lie that like this is valuable that everyone starts trading crap around it but 
Uh, anyways, man, no, it is, it is hard for, for people who are though, if, if, cause frankly, I, I'm going to give this book to my nephews and nieces for sure. Cause I think they're going to be super interested in it. And I think it's a great book to give kids who are into this stuff. Um, cause it's also kind of like you sneak in like a good bit of like, again, like philosophy of mind and like sociology and anthropology. It's like, it's a good way to kind of be like they're learning, but like not really learning, you know? Um, which I thought was also really, really well done on your part. Um, for, for someone who does want to get interested or does want to get involved in this, who does want to learn more, where do you suggest they go? What do you suggest they do? Man, that's such a tough question because like, there's so many like good books or cases mm-hmm. that are like kind of like starters for it. Uh, years ago, uh, Jason McClellan wrote a book, only weirdos see UFOs. Mm. It basically just sums up like the whole history of like, you know, like, gives you brief little descriptions of like all the big cases, the books to read. I think it's a really awesome guide, but like, you know, obviously tell people, you know, go to Roswell and, you know, uh, you know, read about that and read about, uh, area 51 and all those, you know, all those cases. But like, it's hard to really pinpoint, you know, because I think that has to come for the individual. What do they decide? Mm. You know, for me, the first UFO, UFO, real UFO book, I really was gravitated to was communion. Um, I just remember seeing the cover and there was something about that cover, the art, that, that, that creepy looking alien. And uh, even the name communion, it was like, it's such a, I don't know, there's something about just everything about it. I was drawn to it. And there's something I mentioned in that book too about it. Uh, it's like a book connection. Yeah, no, you do. Yeah. Yep. For certain reasons, which is a whole nother rabbit hole we can go down. Um, but yeah, so it's like, I think that depends on the person because I, I think this is a book where, you know, you can learn a lot from it just by questioning yourself and your own beliefs. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to write a book where I'm lecturing someone or saying this is this. And, uh, you know, there's a quiz on it next week. It's more of, Hey, these things are, uh, these things have occurred potentially. Um, and there's also commonalities between that and the movies you watch and the comic books you read. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's come to the realization that, um, you know, these occurrences aren't really all that odd. And then let's go from there. So, yeah, I think that's like all in the eye of the beholder. You know, if they're picking up my book or another book or whatever, you know, it's really hard to tell them, you know, where do you, you know, where to start. Um, yeah, like I said, for me, it was communion. There's just something about that book I was drawn to for whatever reason. And uh, it resonated with me when I read it, too. I didn't just pick it up because I thought it looked cool. And then I was like, yeah. But that book was, uh, that was the one for me. And I think it, you know, it all depends on the reader. You know, who knows? You know, they may pick up a book about, they may go backwards. Maybe they'll pick up a book about Bigfoot and then, you know, start, you know, get into UFOs. And I kind of meant, you know, it kind of brings you back to the idea of music. You know, when you start discovering bands and artists, you know, maybe you start with one genre and like, so like they always say like in punk rock, most kids in the nineties, like me, got started with pop punk. And then like, you kind of work your way backwards. You know, you go to the predecessors, the old school punk, and then, start listening to emo music and then like post hardcore. So it's like this kind of like evolution musically. And it's kind of like the same thing with, with, with these subjects too. I think a lot of people get into the nuts, nuts and bolts of UFO ufology first. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I think the trend nowadays, people are kind of getting away from that. You know, these more, these new age ideas are suddenly more acceptable where 10 or 20 years ago, they wouldn't have been. Yeah, no, for sure, man. I am um, the cyclical nature of the field and and just kind of all fields, it seems like it's really interesting. It's kind of a commonality or a thing that appears in a lot of thought, which is kind of cool. The one, um, 
one thing, this is the last question I ask you, right? Cause it's late. I'm sure you're tired. <laughs> um, if, if tomorrow a UFO lands in, in front of the white house, maybe not the white house, a UFO lands in front of the EU parliament building. <laughs> and, um, and a, a being comes out and is like, give me an hour. I'm gonna explain it all. Right. And so this being, let's say he's a little, he's a little gray. Let's call him a gray, right? He comes out and he gives the whole history, right? Do you think, do you think that the mythologizing or the stories would collapse around what is now apparently the true theme? Or do you think the mythologizing would continue? It's a great question. I mean, look at how society, especially our country, views uh not, not these themes but just views truth in general mm-hmm. uh, i think we're, we're so just such a everything that's happened in our country you know with you know the past four years i mean honestly you have a large part of our population who doesn't believe in science who don't they don't listen to scientists you know they don't listen to the news you know they listen to who they it's selective hearing and it's like i feel like if a, if a ufo came down a great came down a bunch of people would be like that's bullshit. I don't believe him. You know, it's, you know, if it was Jesus who came down, I would believe him. Or, you know, what if that alien came down and said he was Jesus? A fraction of people wouldn't believe him anyway. So, and once again, this goes back to my first book, this idea of our process of belief, what we choose to believe and what we don't. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I think the cultural impact of like a UFO coming down, an alien coming down would be huge. But I guarantee there'd be a, a, a large portion of this population that would be like, no. And that kind of... Um, I always remind you of this brilliant uh, lyric in a Bad Religion song, and it goes, um, uh, I'll believe in God when one and one are five. <laughs> and I think that's pretty interesting. Um, but it's like, it's like all these things could, you know, you could believe in, you know, God and you can believe in science. They don't have to be like adversarial. Um, but yeah, I, I just think, you know, our, the way our society thinks nowadays, we could have the truth in front of us and a bunch of people, We'll just reject it. And I'm connecting that to the current events, what's happening right now. I mean, like you said, mm-hmm. you know, the CDC will say wear masks and you see a bunch of people saying, oh, I don't need to wear masks. And, you know. Ain't nobody going to listen to, ain't nobody going to listen to those damn nerds, Mike. Yeah. I mean, no, it's infuriating. It really is. It's like, when did the idea of basic science, I mean, this isn't anything too complex. When did this idea of intellectualism and basic science get diluted and, and vilified? So it's like, yeah, it's it's frustrating. It is. It is frustrating. It's it is one of those things that I think it's a common. Um, what's the word? I really do think, and I I kind of wonder this too. It's it's a it's one of those things that I think has been rolled up into the idea of, and I think part of the downfall of metaphysics was the idea that metaphysics seems by its nature to be, um like sleight of hand, you know, it seems like card tricks. It seems like you're, you're fooling somebody or it's, you know, because it's based on belief, it can't, can't be true in any feasible or good way or interesting way. Um, and I wonder, you know, part of that seems to be part of that. I think people generally are rejecting that feeling in the United States right now, that metaphysics, that belief that, all these other parts of human emotion aren't as uh, valid as, say, science or scientism. 
Um, but at the same time, there are some things that feelings don't, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? There's some things that there are some kind of like bare hard facts that seem just pragmatically to be the case. And, and just as the same way, there are some, maybe there are some cold or maybe not cold hard, but maybe there are some warm spongy things that science can't touch. Right. Um, I don't know, man, I think, but Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It was, uh, it was so much fun. Um, where can people find you? Punk rock and UFOs, obviously. Punkrockandufos.com. The, um, the book is Stranger Than Fiction. It's on uh, Amazon, Kindle, and Barnes and Noble. Um, please get it. Uh, I think it's my life's best work I've ever done in terms of this subject. Uh, and Chris, once again, thank you again for having me on. I, I always like having our discussions because not only fascinating and thought-provoking, I think your approach is different than any of the other podcasts out there. Just kind of your where you're coming from. You're coming at almost like like from like not like left field, but like a different angle, which is really cool. I think, you know, as an interviewer, I think it gives uh, the interviewee a lot to kind of digest. Like, you know, like all, these are all really good thought-provoking questions. So thank you again for having me. Thanks, man. We, we try, you know what? We try not to ask the same old questions. If I asked you what your favorite UFO case was every time, you want to come on the show, right? So, man, th- yeah, you'd still come on. I know. You're, well, you're, you know, you're, you're a friend of the show, so you, you got it. You can't say no. Um, I'd stop talking to you, right? No, man. Thank you so much. Listeners, please do buy the book, Stranger Than Fiction. Um, even if you're listening to this and you're a skeptic, you're someone who, you know, doesn't think there's anything in any of this UFO stuff. It is a fascinating read. Well worth the time. I honestly, not even kidding, could not put it down. Thought it was really great. Loved it. Absolutely. Um, everyone, again, this has been uh, Mike DeMonte and uh, Stranger Than Fiction, Punk Rock and UFOs. Check them out. Thank you again, dear listeners, for listening to the Mad Scientist podcast. I have been your host, Chris Cogswell, joined by my co-host, Marie Mayhew. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter at madscientistpod or at teamgiantsquid for Marie. And of course, you can see us on Facebook, on Instagram, and all over the internet as the Mad Scientist Podcast. And again, our logo is the one with the pumpkin head, so it's easy to see. Mm-hmm. If you've enjoyed the show tonight, please consider supporting us on Patreon, where the money that you give to us will help us to promote this show further, to make it better, and just to spend more time making it. Yes, we love doing that. We do love doing that. Our logo was designed by Carrie Shaheen, our... Web design is done by Desdemona Howard. And our sound design is done by Jake Cardinal. Thanks again for listening. (laughs) Thank you. This has been a damn it chippy production. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute.
and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.